0: Welcome back for this week's episode of Access and Opportunity. This season, we are exploring how influential investors from across various pools of capital are helping women and multiculturally led businesses gain access to capital. On today's episode, we'll be talking to Charles Hudson, an entrepreneur turned investor who has made diversity and inclusion of underrepresented groups a priority for his investment portfolio. Charles Hudson is the founder and managing partner of Precursor Ventures, a seed stage venture capital firm that was founded on the belief that all entrepreneurs, regardless of background, benefit from having an institutional investor to help them scale and grow their company from the very beginning. Today, Charles will talk to us about how his experiences as an entrepreneur have shaped his lens as an investor, why he focuses on pre-seed companies, and how the entire investing landscape needs to change to better incorporate women and people of color at every level. Now, let's start this conversation with Charles Hudson. So, Charles, thank you so much for being with us on our third season of Access and Opportunity.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, it's our pleasure, I assure you. And this season, as you know, we're speaking to investors because we want entrepreneurs who are listening to really kind of understand what they need to be on the lookout for, how should they approach you, what are the key things you're looking for as an investor, and the other investors that are listening. We want them hopefully to get something from you about how you've accessed these deals, especially entrepreneurs of color and entrepreneurs that are women and how you think about it. So they might have sort of a playbook if they aren't already playing in this space. And lastly, I'd like people to kind of understand your evolution, how you went from being one of those entrepreneurs to now being an investor. So why don't we start there from entrepreneur to precursor ventures?
1: Yeah, it's been a really interesting journey I'm one of those people who I think in retrospect, I'd always been an entrepreneur, even as a little kid. I had businesses growing up. I had a lawn care business when I was in high school, paper route, all of those things. And I'm originally from Michigan and moved out to California. And I didn't really have a a model for tech entrepreneurship. That Mm -hmm. was sort of a new thing for me. And I think it's hard to be in the bear for very long and not get that itch to start something. And so I've had a couple of different entrepreneurial ventures I'd say the one that was probably the most instructive in my journey was I started a Android games company with a friend of mine who I'd worked with at a previous startup. We started it together. We financed the first bit of it with just our own money. Wow. And I had been a VC before, and I was moonlighting as a VC at the time, and I said, I think I know everything there is to know about fundraising, raising money for this company is going to be a snap, and it wasn't. Uh-huh. It turned out to be... Much more difficult than I had anticipated, even though I was coming from the industry.
0: Wow. And why is that?
1: I think when you're a VC, it's kind of like you are all day long absorbing information, and you're trying to figure out, of all the really interesting people that I've met, which ones are the best? Mm -hmm. Because I can't invest in only the things that are good. I have to pick the very best. None of these companies that present to you are your company. That's right. And I think when you're an entrepreneur, it's very hard to be objective about your own company. Okay. And even when I knew the VCs across the table were trying to evaluate, well, is the company that Charles was presenting me one of the best? In my mind, I'm like, well, of course it is. We put blood, sweat, and tears into it, and if I step back, I think a lot of people who didn't invest in that company actually made a good decision.
0: So tell us how you went from there and other companies you might have found to Precursor.
1: Yeah, so I, I'd started a company prior to that that was much more of a media company. We sold that to uh, an outfit in New York that was us was pretty happy to transition out of that business. At the end of our games company, we tried to sell it, and we had a very small exit at the end after a lot of work, mm-hmm. and I was just burned out. Yeah. And... I took a little time off after that company, and I stepped back and I said, that's what starting a company is. It's an emotionally draining, Mm -hmm. difficult journey that unfortunately often ends in ruin. And I said, if I'm (laughs) going to do another company, I have to accept that the journey will likely be similar. It's going to be hard. It'll be thrilling and rewarding at times. It's going to be difficult. There's no way to shortcut around that part of entrepreneurship. And so if I want to go back into the arena, Mm. I have to be ready emotionally to go on that journey again. And Carla, I thought about what I wanted out of my life. And I said, you know what's better than being an entrepreneur? Being an investor.
0: Investor.
1: (laughs) So I think I'm ready to go back to the other side of the table. The world is telling me it's time to make a change. And to take some of the lessons I've learned as an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. and apply those Mm -hmm. to my work as an investor.
0: Yeah. Let's uh, now shift towards Precursor Ventures. You know, where'd you get the name Precursor from? How'd you put this together? Let's talk about that process of raising money and how it was different or the same as raising money for the company. Wow. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I feel like I despite saying I wouldn't
1: start another company in a lot of ways precursor is my last <laughs> <You> did, <start. laughs> Although being a startup venture fund manager is very different than being an entrepreneur who's building a, a real business focused on shipping a product. So I'd been a venture partner at a firm called Encore Capital, which used to be called SoftTech. Mm-hmm. I went back there and to invest full-time as a partner. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening is our fund got much larger. When I had joined... My partner, Jeff, it was just the two of us in a small office in Palo Alto. We had $16 under management, so very small. And we were going to go raise what was originally going to be a $35 million fund, and it bloomed into 55, which for two partners felt like a good amount of capital. Outstanding. And we got into some really great companies, Postmates and Fitbit and SendGrid, a lot of really great names. Then we raised an $85 million fund, and I just felt like our firm was getting larger and we were earning the right to ask our limited partners for more capital, and they were giving it to us, which meant we were simultaneously writing bigger checks and investing in fewer companies at the Uh, same time mm. and becoming much more concentrated and focused on a small number of names. Mm -hmm. And I really felt like the thing that gave me the most joy was finding that person who had a great idea, maybe a little bit green in the ways of venture-funded startups, but who I just saw potential in them and where I could invest in quite a few of those every year. And the model we were moving toward was the opposite of that, which was more concentration, companies that had proven more, larger checks, board commitments. It was a different model, and I just sat down with my partner and said, I really miss the old work that we used to do. Hmm. I think you all are going to be super successful with this new model. I don't think my heart's in it. Yeah. And I feel like, of all the people who are in the room, I'm the only person who who feels this way. Wow, I think everyone else is like very comfortable moving mm-hmm. forward. And they've continued to do great work since I left. I just felt like there was this huge hole in the market. I said, look, if you're Mark Zuckerberg or you're some super high-profile repeat founder, you can leave your job and go raise two to $3 million on mm-hmm. an idea. If you're a mid-level person, even at a good company, and you don't know any VCs, you can't get the million dollars that you need. As exactly right. And the threshold for proof and evidence that you need to clear is so much higher. So mm-hmm. I said, all we're really doing a precursor is the same thing that all of the now successful large seed funds did when they were getting started. And they've just aged out of that work. They don't Mm -hmm. need to do it anymore. They can raise bigger funds. They have access to more mature companies. They don't need to do that work anymore. Mm -hmm. But I feel like the demand from entrepreneurs has never been higher.
0: So talk to me about what that process was like in raising that money, though.
1: It was, again, uh, you'll probably pick up a theme of a little bit of naivete sometimes. I really thought that our first fund would be... A relatively straightforward affair. and like what I told all my friends is I'm planning for 12 months, expecting 18 months and budgeting for 24. Mm-hmm. And I'm really happy that I budgeted for 24 months of fundraising because it took me about two years to raise our first fund, which was 15 wow. million dollars. Yeah, it was I think I, I think I stopped counting somewhere around 300 LP meetings, of wow. distinct groups I reached out to. And I understand why. And this is the counterpoint of like, when should you stick to your guns? A lot of really smart, limited partners told me, I don't like the fact that there's only one partner in the fund. It feels fragile to me. I don't like the idea of you doing 25 to 30 companies a year. It's too many companies. You're not going to own enough. I don't like the fact that you're sort of a generalist by nature. That feels Mm -hmm. hard to do in a market where there's tons of venture funds. And overall, the story you're telling me is inconsistent with what I believe works because most people told me what works is concentrated ownership and a few really great names, build your firm that way, that mm-hmm. works. And so I got a lot of no's, and there were times where I said maybe I should really change our model to fit what the market's telling me yeah. it would be easier to fund. And I just said, I don't think that's what I want to build, and I don't think that's what the market actually needs. And I think if I can make this thing work for three to five years with this strategy, it will seem a lot less out of step yes. when I have some proof points.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Wow. And so how did you finally convince people? It was just people who were also disciples and said, I agree with you. There's a big hole. I've been waiting for somebody to do it. But what was the thing that actually took them over the line to the yes column?
1: I think almost all fundraising comes down to matching. Mm. I don't really know that I changed many people's minds on the fundraising okay. trail. I think I met some people who were neutral about what I was doing. Okay. And maybe in the fund one conversation we had, I made them 10% more inclined to think about me positively for the next time.
0: Okay. And
1: probably the most surprising thing was behind the scenes without me knowing there were some limited partners that I'd met who decided not to invest in the fund because they didn't like the strategy, but they liked me. Yeah, And so without without my doing, they were in the background calling other limited saying, partners. I like saying, I like this guy. I like this guy. I don't like yeah. the strategy, but it's more consistent with what you like. Mm-hmm. You should get this guy in your office. One of our largest LPs came inbound to me. Interesting. Quasi-cold, and my response was, oh, I, this must be for my old partner. You know I started my own fund. Let me put yeah. you in touch with him. He goes, no, 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 I actually want to talk to you. Ah. Uh-huh. And That's I was outstanding. Like, oh, all right. Well, that was unexpected. And then you know, all fundraising once you have momentum, yes, good things start happening That's for exactly you and right. towards the end. We had some momentum, and I was really pleased with the way that the fundraising turned out.
0: Wow. So tell me a little bit about how you invested that first fund, what you were looking for in terms of entrepreneurs. Uh, I'd also like to hear about whether or not you found any supply issues with finding entrepreneurs of color or entrepreneurs that were women, because as you well know, what you still hear here in the Valley is, "Well, I can't find any. That's why I don't have more in my portfolio. So talk a little bit about that. So we have
1: found no supply problem with women of color. Female entrepreneurs for us is not a problem. I think in Fund 2, we have more female founders in our portfolio than male founders. If you look at the whole founder population. And it's 80 plus companies, so Mm -hmm. it's it's a big big pool. So our strategy for Fund 1 was pretty simple. I felt like there was this gap in the market at the bottom, which was pre-launch, pre-traction, I tell everyone, pre-everything companies. There was just very little risk capital for them. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, well this is, if you think of capital as a teeter-totter, on this side where I am, there's the companies that have no traction, there's almost no money over here, and then companies that have even a little bit of evidence, there's a ton of capital for them. I'm like, okay, our job is very simple. It's to get companies from the zero traction point to the place where there's enough evidence that the next investor could say, oh, I see it. Okay, I see it. And so I said, all right, I think we can do 15 or 20 companies a year in that way and help them get to the next level. hmm And so that was the strategy was to write a check of between 100 and 250K, predominantly to companies that were pre-launch, pre-traction, and ideally in situations where we could be the lead investor. Okay. That was the goal. Mm -hmm. Because it also turns out a lot of companies would come to me and say, I've got 200K in Angels. You should close them. Yeah, I can't close them because they said they'll only invest if I find a lead investor. I'm like, well, Uh, what do you really need? They said, I need someone to give me a term sheet who's credible. That's what I need. I said, well, I can do that for you. Mm -hmm. Here's what I've learned. The first thing we did and people always comment on is when we built our website, I'm like, well, if we're investing in people, shouldn't we just put the people's faces on our website? Not the company logos, not the company names, Mm -hmm. not our pictures. Shouldn't we have the dominant experience you have on our website be the faces of the people that we've backed? And I said, I would love it to be a situation where no matter who you are and what you look like, white man, black woman, there should be a handful of people on this page that look like you. Mm hmm because I want people to feel like this is a community of founders that welcomes all people from all backgrounds.
0: It speaks for itself. It speaks for Uh itself.
1: And uh, I've had a lot of founders tell me, like, hey, I landed on your website. I looked at the pictures, and I kind of get what you're trying to say, and it it made an impression on me. Mm -hmm. And I think what happens is if you start backing female founders or founders of color, you hold them to the same standards that you hold all of your entrepreneurs to, because they're not looking for you to make it easier on them or treat them Mm -hmm. differently. You give them a good experience, they will tell their friends. Mm -hmm. And their friends will come seek you out. And if you continue to do that, you end up with a majority female portfolio, actually quite quickly. It's not that hard. What I've noticed is a lot of people aren't necessarily willing to do the work. I've told people, what should we do? I'm like, we should find some really great female founders and fund them and support them and integrate them into your portfolio. Okay. Other than that, what can I do to change? I'm like, wow. well, there's, there isn't anything else <laughs> I can think of that will other work. Other than that. Other than that, and I'm I'm very perplexed by firms that tell me they can't. I have some sympathy for them, but if you're a seed stage investor, I don't I don't understand. We we measure our pipeline all the time at Precursor, and sometimes then you know I told our LPs, my goals are 25 percent of our portfolio companies should have a black or Latinx founder on the mm-hmm. team because I think. All people of color have fundraising challenges, but I think black and Latinx people have a disproportionately difficult time relative to others.
0: Mm -hmm. That's what the data says. data says. So it's not anecdotal. Yep. Mm -hmm.
1: And I said at least 25% of our companies should have a female founder on the team. And in retrospect, 25 was like such a low bar. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised my LPs didn't encourage me to push it higher. And we're about on target for people of color and we're way ahead of schedule on women. And the new challenge for us is how do we get more black and Latinx Mm -hmm. women in our portfolio. We've done better with men and I think it's because the firm is run by men. I don't think there's any big mystery there. Mm -hmm. But that's a strategic imperative and we always always measure ourselves and say, okay, we're halfway through the portfolio deployment-wise. Where are we on these metrics and do we need to do anything different on the back end to end up with a portfolio that we're proud of? We try to hold ourselves accountable Mm -hmm. to this because I think if we don't, you can easily just end up on a run where you don't pay attention, the next thing you know, it's too late. It's too late to add enough to the portfolio to get the balance you want. That's right. Also, we have two-thirds of our team is black women.
0: Mm. Well, was, that's going to help right there.
1: I will tell you, I learn a lot from them yeah. because sometimes we'll look at the same company and we'll have really different reactions to the product or service yes. or market opportunity. And, you know, they're both they're both of a different gender and younger than I am, and their social networks are different. So I tell people, if you're not going to, give money to black and brown entrepreneurs, get some on your team. Yeah. Get the DNA inside your firm and it'll make a difference. Yeah. And so I feel really lucky that, you know, our small Motley crew, They they help keep me and the firm honest.
0: Yeah, that's outstanding. So talk to me about some of the companies that you've seen. What would you tell entrepreneurs that are listening from, Charles, the investor's perspective? You've already given them an entrepreneur's, but from the investor perspective, what do people need to do to be more ready to entertain a conversation successfully with you?
1: Boy, it's such a good question. We really focus on people and markets at Precursor mm. because most of the companies we back are pre product. Mm-hmm. I think if you're going to be a predominantly people and market investor, you have to, one, have a sense for what you're looking for in terms of personality traits and attributes from the people. But also you have to understand like what does a good market look like? Mm-hmm. And for me a good market is one where the founder sitting across the table from me has a really unique insight on the problem that they're going after and why not just the market's big but structurally the other people who are in the market mm-hmm. are not well positioned mm-hmm. to respond. So we call it what's the durable insight. Okay. So I was looking for a really durable insight and durable is almost as important as insight. It can't be something that's ephemeral. Mm-hmm. Well, Facebook doesn't do this yeah, but they're working on it, and they have all the distribution, and if they do a halfway decent job, they'll probably win. So we tend to find people where that insight is born from having studied the problem and having a point of view that oftentimes is different than the consensus.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what do you say about the founder, though? Since you're so people-driven, what are you looking for in terms of the leader? Uh, As you can probably tell, I gravitate towards stubborn people.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a difference between founders who are good at listening and founders who are good at taking advice. Mm -hmm. Particularly with first-time founders, I find a lot of them, they're like reeds in the wind sometimes. Mm. The last piece of influential advice from an influential person really has probably more weight than the dispenser intended. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, a skill that founders have to learn sometimes. So that's one is the ability to be a good listener, but not be unduly swayed by every piece of feedback. I think there is sort of this reality that you are self-aware about what you do well and what you don't do well, and that okay. you can talk openly and freely about some of your own shortcomings and mm-hmm. flaws, and have a recognition about how those shortcomings and flaws are likely to manifest themselves in the company. And I tell all the founders feedback. Oh. be back... Your company will be a mirror of your own idiosyncrasies and insecurities, and it will magnify them. Mm -hmm. So the more you're aware of what they are, the better you can do to combat them. But I feel like that's what startups do, the stressful nature of building them and the fact that you're in charge Mm -hmm. brings all that stuff
0: out. Mm-hmm. No question. One of the things that I figured out really early on is that founders don't necessarily have the DNA to know how to interview people successfully and understand what they need. What do you tell your portfolio companies or what do you teach them about successfully interviewing and adding the team appropriately?
1: So I offer to all of them that if there's a candidate that they're excited about where they want a second set of eyes, mm-hmm. I'm here for that. And okay. I will help them with that. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, I sort of only did it on the unsuccessful ones. And I realized that was kind of a downer conversation. And there's a lot to learn from the successful ones. So sometimes they'll tell us, we hired this person and she's great. Where'd you find her? You know, she didn't have the typical background we were looking for, but she had really good attitude and she works hard and she cares. I'm like, so maybe we should adjust our hiring filter to Uh find more people like this person. Maybe Mm -hmm. we should de-emphasize. And I would say on average... Most of the hiring mistakes I see founders that we we work with make are leaning too much on credentials and not enough on their own tactile experience dealing mm-hmm. with the candidate. So, mm-hmm. Well, the person worked at Google and like they're really smart. I'm like, that doesn't mean anything at all in the context of your company. Mm-hmm. Your company's not Google. Yeah. It's not Facebook. It's not Twitter. Mm-hmm. And I find oftentimes startup founders have to make one really bad over-credentialed hire to get that out of their system. So it usually takes one. (laughs)
0: That's a great playbook point.
1: The other thing I tell them is I'm like, let's just agree we're not gonna hire anyone until we meet 20 people.
0: Okay, okay, that's good advice, good
1: playbook point. I'm like, you still might like the first candidate, Mm -hmm. and if you know we have to get through 20 first, then you will prioritize finding these people. That's right. And you'll just feel much more comfortable about the pool of candidates you have. Yeah,
0: you'll get some good practice, if nothing else. So let's talk a little bit about the industry so how do you feel that, or do you feel, that the landscape is changing at all with respect to more investors focusing on multicultural and female entrepreneurs? Is it shifting?
1: Not as fast as I would like. Mm-hmm. And Carla, the same way that I mentioned to you that I've told some of my peers in the industry, if you want to diversify your firms, I've had equally frustrating conversations with limited partners, the people who fund venture capital firms. And everyone said, we're very committed to improving the gender and racial demographics in both venture and startups, what should we do? I'm like, you should give money to black and brown fund managers. You do not have to give it to me. This is not like a sales pitch for precursor. Mm -hmm. Find the people who are already in these communities and give them money. Other than that, what can I do to make an impact? I'm like, well, you can hope that the very firms that you work with today that you have not pushed to do better will suddenly have an epiphany and change their ways. I do not think that's likely to happen. I think to me, the canonical example is if you look at what's happened with women in venture in the last five years, it's not as if all of the sudden we sprouted all of these great female investors. They were sitting there in plain sight the whole time. Mm -hmm. And whether it's all raise or other activities as a group, limited partners, VC firms said, this is not an okay outcome. We need to make real progress promoting and advancing women in this business to the point that if you're a firm that's all men, I think it for the first time it feels uncomfortable in mm-hmm. venture to have that website. Yes. And you know that people are going to judge you by Absolutely. your actions. Absolutely, And I think it's because women as a group have a strong constituency. Mm-hmm and my biggest concern for venture is people of color don't have the same constituency we're not well represented in the leadership of firms unless we started those firms yes and those firms that we started precursor 645 mm-hmm. cross culture m ventures these are all sub 100 million dollar AUM, not yes. even AUM firms. Yes. So, in the grand scheme of venture influence, we're all small but mighty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The largest of large firms don't have people of color on their investment committees, in senior partner roles. They don't. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be a much more difficult fight because the constituency is smaller and more distributed
0: hmm And it, who knows? It may be women that actually lead the charge on that, some of these other these other funds. Wouldn't be the first time in our history. Yeah. No, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. And what do you think is the, the real point of resistance? Not enough data, deep-seated, different views? What's the issue?
1: I think there's two things that I hear. Well, it's two things that I think. One that I hear and one that I see. Okay. The thing that I hear from limited partners sometimes is this chicken and egg. Well, we just haven't seen the financial returns from investing mm-hmm. in this way, I go. Well, how much money have you put to work against the strategy? None. Mm-hmm. But if it worked, you'd put dollars against it. I'm like, well, don't the dollars need to come first? I understand that's a difficult argument. I am not giving up that point, but yes. I've heard that one. The one that I see more often is if you say, well, where do most venture capitalists come from? Forty percent of our business is Stanford and Harvard. Yeah, and I went. Forty percent. Wow. Forty percent of venture capitalists at some point in time set foot at Harvard or Stanford. I went to Stanford twice, and I see it all the time. <laughs> So, what do those institutions look like? Yeah, They look like venture, and venture looks like them. And so, what are the other on-ramps? Ironically, almost all of the change has happened by black and brown people starting brand new firms. Yes. But not everybody wants to do mm-hmm. that. And that should, the only course shouldn't be, hey, you're blocked at your current firm, or you're unhappy at your current firm, or you want more autonomy. There should be a path for people who want to be at larger firms on bigger platforms to get promoted and grow. And I think, last time I checked, Kapor Capital might be one of the only firms that's internally promoted uh, a black person from a sort of non-investing role to a senior role. Mm-hmm. And they and did I it think, twice with Lily and Brian. Right.
0: That's right, I think half their partners, they've said, are black and a third are you know Latinx. And I don't know if you've seen their recent report, but it's outstanding in terms and which is what we've been saying, outsized returns, being intentional about investing in the multicultural and women's space. And now the data is out there. I mean, it's, it's just outstanding.
1: They were actually the first people to commit to my first fund. Yes. Wow. And I would say five years ago, I had a much more naive view of how things work and really because of the time I spent with Frida and Mitch, it has helped me better understand how to be a better advocate.
0: Wow. Well, you're certainly not naive now. And it has been a joy to have this conversation with you. And before I let you go, we have a tradition on access and opportunity where we allow our listeners to get to know you a little bit more through a lightning round of more personal questions. Are you ready? Ready favorite book or
1: magazine? I can tell you the best book I've read recently is called The Geography of Jobs.
0: Geography of Jobs. Okay. City or the countryside? City. Winter or summer? Summer. Women or multicultural led business investment that you're most excited about?
1: How can you ask me to choose among my own children? (laughs) Okay.
0: Everybody says that.
1: I'll pick one. Uh, We are investors in a company called Incredible Health that's run by Iman Abu and it's She's an incredible force of nature entrepreneur. and Incredible I, health, okay. I couldn't be more excited about what she's building.
0: Okay, all righty. Coffee or tea? Too much coffee. <laughs> Email or phone call? Phone call. If you had a talk show, who would be your first guest? Barack Obama. All right. What's one word that you'd like to use to describe your legacy? Genuine. All right. Well, sir... It has been a joy. Thank Thank you you so so much, much, Charles, for spending some time with us today.
1: It was really a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you all for listening to this episode of Access and Opportunity. I'm your host, Carla Harris. Next week is our final episode for Season 3, and I'm excited to be having another conversation with the formidable Dr. Frida Kapoor-Klein of Kapoor Capital. She'll talk about her firm's recently released impact report and how other VCs can capture outsized returns while making a real difference in the world. Come on and join me.